Hey, grab a Bible, would you? And turn it with me to page 974, and that's where you can find Galatians chapter 4. We're going to start in verse 8 in just a minute. We're also going to be in Luke 15. You can find that on page 874. Look at that. Fun fact, 100 pages apart. Uh, So a couple years ago, I made an important choice in my life. I decided I was done with Facebook, done with Instagram, closed my Facebook account, left my Instagram account open. And then just recently, here at Our Father, we've started putting clips of sermons as reels on Instagram. Uh, You can subscribe to our account, follow us if you want to. And, you know, the magical algorithms in the sky say that if you like a particular post, it gets promoted more often. So as staff members, we started doing that. And what I found is that I was kind of interested in the things that Pastor Micah was saying on Instagram and Pastor Abel was saying. I was, it's kind of cringy to watch your own self preach, uh, so I wasn't really interested in what I was preaching, but uh, then I decided, you know what, I need to start posting again. So I decided to post a picture, and uh, lo and behold, what I found is that I was paying less attention to our Father, and I was paying more attention to my own account and the picture that I had posted to see how many people were liking what I had posted. And in my defense, it's a pretty good picture. It's the only one I've put up in a couple of years. Take a look. That's my son Jude, right before bed, living his best life. Uh, He's uh, in his pajamas. He's drinking a milk from uh, a Minion cup with a straw. I think I had turned around after I put the milk in the fridge and then turned back to Jude and saw him sitting there and like had to grab my phone as quick as I could to capture this moment. Uh, He's in his bathrobe, his PJ mask bathrobe with his feet on the table. That's where, uh, right next to our kitchen, and that's where, of course, Jude living his best life. Uh, you can follow me if you want. Uh, so, uh, Nate Paragoy, at Nate Paragoy, if you want, um, for more pictures like this. Now, whether you have a social media account, here's what I think. That the reason why... Uh, we can take this picture off. That's, we're done with Jude, all right? Uh, the reason why social media has such staying power and the reason we find ourselves scrolling... Is there something about the human heart that longs to know others and to be known by others? That it's inescapable, our desire to see and to be seen, to feel like we're heard, and to hear the people around us, but moreover, to, hear, to be heard and to be known by the people who matter most to us. It's the longing of every human heart. And these words that we have before us today in Galatians chapter 4 have something to say about our deepest longing and the words of Jesus in Luke chapter 15 that we'll get to in a few minutes after that. Let's start first in Galatians chapter 4. You got your Bible open, and I hope you do. Let's start reading in verse Eight of chapter 4. Paul says this to the Christians living in the region of Galatia. He says, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. Okay, pause right there. We're going to read verse 9 in a moment, but for now, let's just see that Paul is asking the people who were reading this letter to look back at a point in their own lives before they had heard the gospel 
And in verse 9, when they were turning to the elementary principles of this world, let's read verse 9. It says, but now that you have come to know God, or rather be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? Now, what are these elementary principles? Are these the, the building blocks or the basics, the ABCs of the Christian faith? No, Paul's referring to an entirely different faith altogether. A pagan belief at the time that behind everything in the natural world, that underneath it, behind it, was a spirit or an element or a god. So if you were a sailor and you wanted safe passage, you'd pray to the sea god. And if you were a farmer and you wanted to ensure a good harvest, you'd make a sacrifice to the fertility god. It was a way of getting things from an impersonal God to earn their blessing or their favor. If you notice here, back again in verse 8, Paul calls them non-gods. He calls them weak. He calls them worthless. Paul says that was before verses 8 and 9. And now he says, look who you are after. Let's keep reading in verse 10. He says, on this side of your conversion, you observe days and months and seasons and years. Okay, what's Paul talking about here? He's not simply listing the kinds of things that appear on a calendar. He's talking about the system of religious practice and sacrifice, ritual washings and festivals and holidays scattered throughout the calendar year as prescribed in the Old Testament. In other words, he's saying you may have good intentions on this side of your conversion of adding good behavior and religious observance but you're doing the very same things now as you were before as a way to get things from, in this case, the true God to earn his blessing and his favor. Those two things are the same things. Okay, you say, Pastor Nate, thank you for the history lesson. That was then. How about now? That was them. That's not me. Okay, maybe or maybe not. Jesus is speaking to this very same thing in Luke chapter 15 to show them, and I would argue to show you and to show me how pervasive, not just this was, but how pervasive and widespread this is. So flip with me back to Luke 15. Jesus tells a story. Maybe well known to you if you grew up in church, a story about a father who has two sons. And the younger son wakes up one morning and he says to his dad, Father, give me my share of the inheritance. Now, the father couldn't go down to the bank and make a withdrawal from his assets. He had to divide, to liquidate his assets, his property. If you trace the word property, it shows up all over the place. The property that had been in the family line for generations. And if you were one of the hearers, one of the people who was listening to Jesus tell this story, he's surrounded in Luke 15, verse 1 and 2, tells us that there are tax collectors there, and there are the bad people, and there are the good people, the Pharisees who were there. They would have been shocked. Because essentially what the son is saying to his father is, Father, I, I know as good as you are, I'd rather have your things than have you. You might as well be dead to me. And he wanders away, and he spends his father's money, which is now his money, in reckless living. It's a nice way of saying it. You would have been shocked if you were hearing this because it would have been the responsibility of the older brother in this traditional ancient culture to go after the younger brother and to bring him back home. 
Okay. Younger brother. What we find at the core of his heart is a desire to define right and wrong for himself, no matter the trappings of his culture or his family, and to redraw the boundary for himself, and to obey when it's convenient, and to disobey when it's not. In other words, to be the Lord of his own life, and to live life his way as if he's in charge in order to be not only his own Lord, but his own Savior, and to find his fulfillment, to fill his own heart in living whatever way he wants, and to find total freedom that way until he comes to his senses. Until he finds out that total freedom isn't that fun. And so he goes back to his dad. Not for his dad, but for his father's things. Do you catch that too? He says, look, I don't want to go home to see my dad. He really says, look at my father's servants. They have more bread than I do here. So I'll work hard and I'll be as good as I can to earn my father's favor because I'm not even worthy to have his favor to be called his son. I'm only worthy to be called one of his servants, which is a lot like the older brother, but we'll get back to him in a moment. But as you remember, as you can almost picture the younger son kind of practicing this conversation in his head on his steps back home. As soon as he gets it out of his mouth, the father almost ignores it. He will have none of it. He almost interrupts his son, and he turns to his servant, and he says, quick, uh, let's get the best robe. Let's grab my best ring. Let's put shoes on his feet. Let's kill the fattened calf, and let's celebrate and be glad because my son was dead and is alive. He was lost, and he is found. Okay. Here's what I know. I know that there are a lot of younger brothers in this room who obey when it's convenient and who disobey when it's not. Because there's a propensity in your heart and in mine, which is why I know, to redraw the boundary and to define right and wrong for ourselves, even if it's for a moment. And whether you've had a period of rebellion in your life or not, there's a younger brother in every human heart, which is why this parable is so well known, because we know deep down that we are prone to wander, and there is no amount of good behavior that can fix the inner selfishness of your heart or mine. And so this, of course, is why we call this parable that maybe you've heard before, the parable of the lost son or the prodigal son who wanders away. I've always heard it described in such a way as to emphasize the disobedience of the younger son and the faithful love of the father who, if you notice, comes out to his son to meet him and welcomes him home with open arms. And what we miss when we see only that, because that's certainly true, we miss that there's someone else at the end of this story. It's not the younger brother, it's the older brother. And there are two sons, and they are both lost. The elder brother, let's take him. He hears that his younger brother is back, and he's furious. And he turns to one of the servants in the field and he says, what's going on? What's the party about? And he hears that his brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and now he's found. 
and he's upset. And the father has to go out to him too. So I hope you still have your Bible open. Let's look at chapter 15, verse 29, to hear how the younger son, or excuse me, the older brother responds to the father. Because it will tell us something about his heart too. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Probably not. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. Verse 30, but when this son of yours came, he doesn't even call him his brother. He's not even happy that he's back. When this son of yours came, who has devoured your, there again, it is property. We find that word with prostitutes. You killed a fattened calf for him? What does that tell us about the operating system of his heart? That he, like his younger brother at the beginning of Act 1, cares more about his father's things than his father. And he's got the same problem as his younger brother. He says, look how good I've been. Look at my resume. Look what I deserve. But he's doing the right things for the wrong reasons. He's doing them for himself. And his problem is not his disobedience. His problem is his obedience. Okay. Here's what I know that we've got a lot of older brothers in the room today, too. How can you tell? Because you can look good on the outside and come to church and be a good person, but still on the inside, have an entirely different operating system in your heart. One way you can tell is that when your life gets hard, your prayer life heats up as it should, but it goes back down and cools off when things in your life go back to normal. It's the first sign that you're more interested in the Father's things and his blessings than you are in the Father. And when you look at your life second, and you can't understand why things have gone wrong, you assume it must be somebody's fault. It's either your fault because you haven't been good enough, or it's God's fault because he hasn't been good enough. And you may look good on the outside, but on the inside you can be angry and self-righteous and indignant at people who aren't as good as you are or don't have it together like you do. Here's the thing about older brothers and sisters. Is that of the two, it's the more spiritually dangerous position. Because elder brothers... And look good, do the right thing, and have a hard heart on the inside, and never know how lost you are, that you can do the right thing for the wrong reason, and at least the younger brother comes to his senses. I don't think the best question is, which of the two brothers am I? I think the best question is, how am I like both? Because I'd argue that you are a younger brother and a younger older brother and you're a younger sister and an older sister on the same day. Why does that matter? Because it's the same problem that Paul is writing about to the churches in Galatia, that it's not just them then, it's now too, that our good behavior for the wrong reasons is just as much of a problem as our bad behavior. So what do we do? 
And the answer that we find is in what seems like a throwaway line that we've already read. Back to Galatians chapter 4, look at verse 9. Paul says this, But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God. What's Paul saying here? Is he simply correcting his own stream of consciousness? We know that he he dictated many of his letters. He's just kind of talking out loud and going, no, wait, it's not that. It's it's this other thing. Uh, Actually, uh, we have here that uh, later in chapter 6, he says, look, that I wrote this letter myself with large letters in my own hand. Paul's saying this. He's being very specific that knowing God is one thing. And at our Father Lutheran Church, we believe that knowing God matters and that knowing God is more than just a head thing, knowing about God, that knowing God is also a heart thing, knowing God. And as good as it is to know God, that being known by God matters far more. And to be known by God is more than intellectual knowledge, or factual awareness, like he knows the number of hairs on our head. Some of us, you know, can count higher than others. Oh no, my friends. To be known by God is to be known personally and intimately that he knows you and he sees you and even all that he knows about you, he still loves you. Much like the way a parent knows their child far more than a child knows their parent. You know, there's that weird thing about being a kid, no matter how old you are, it's always hard to consider that there was one time when your parents were your age I mean, look at what this parent in Luke chapter 15 says to his child. Son, you are always with me. And all that is mine is yours. To be known by God means many things, but we find three things here that speak to, to your heart and to my heart, to the longing of every human being. These three things, that it means identity, and belonging and security, that he means he knows who you are better than you do and whose you are, and he has a story for your life, a destiny planned out far greater than you could ever dream or imagine. I'd like to spend the rest of our time, before we close, looking very closely at these three things. First, who you are. He says, my son, my daughter, And that's not dependent upon how good you are. That's not erased by how bad you are or how hard you work, whether you work at all. It's, in fact, not about you at all. He says, you're my son, you're my daughter. And when your life changes, and it certainly will, that you have a status that never does, that you're adopted by grace, and you are his, known by him. And only Christianity gives you a status that you can never lose. For younger brothers, that even in your rebellion and your wandering, he sees you and he knows you and he loves you. And only Christianity gives you a status that you can never earn. That elder brothers and elder sisters, it's his goodness that makes you good. And it's his love that makes you lovely. It's his strength that makes you strong. It's who you are. It's 
whose you are. He says, you belong to me, you're mine. You remember the words of the Father? You are always with me. You remember the words of Jesus before he leaves earth? He says, I am with you always. You're never on your own. You're never alone. You think you're the only Christian in your school, kids? You're not alone. You're not on your own. You think you're the only Christian at your work? You're not on your own. You're never alone. God hasn't given you children. You're not alone. You're not on your own. God hasn't given you a spouse or the spouse that you had isn't with you anymore. You're not on your own. You're never alone. He says, you're with me and I'm with you. You belong to me and you are mine. And he sees you whether you can see him or not. He's with you whether you can feel him or not. Better than to know that he is with you is to know that you are known by him and he is with you. It's whose you are. That's what it means to be known by him. And he knows where you're headed, that he has a destiny for you that is secure for your future. That means today when he says that uh, my mercy is new every morning and my mercy is more, that means that tomorrow is a brand new start no matter how hard today has been, no matter how much you've screwed up. And it means when he says you've got my daily bread, in fact, I'm asking you to pray for that. In the Lord's Prayer, he says that you'll always have everything you need until your head hits the pillow tonight. It means today you're okay, and tomorrow is taken care of too, that the pen is in his hands, and he's writing a better story for your life than you could write for yourself if the pen were in your hand. Remember Galatians chapter 4? We read these words a few moments ago, where Paul says, in chapter 4, he says, you know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. We're not sure what that ailment was. Based on a couple of things that we can see in Paul's letters in the New Testament, it probably was his eyesight. Remember, he's bragging later in this letter, chapter 6, verse 11, see what large letters I write with my own hand. He dictated many of his letters. I said that a few moments ago. He talks later in here, look at the next verse. Although, and though my condition was a trial to you, did not discorn or despise me. There's something about his appearance that might have been forsaken. He goes on in verse 15 to talk about his eyes, that, that the Galatian Christians would have gouged out their own eyes and given them to him. I mean, what, what is that about? Probably something is wrong with his eyesight. He had a chronic condition that perhaps, this is just my guess, that he pulled over in the region of Galatia because, because he had a, an acute flare-up. And were it not for his ailments, he never would have pulled over and written the letter and spent time with the Christians who are reading these very words that we're reading today. What does that mean? That means that nothing, no ailment, no illness, no mistake can get in the way of God's unstoppable plan for your life. And if the words of Romans chapter 8, verse 28 are true, that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose, not in some things that God can take your hard things and turn them into good things. All that is mine is yours. That your destiny is secure, your present is his, he, you have his provision. And forever, because you are his, and he is yours. He has a future for you that is far greater than you could dream or imagine. To be known by God means these three things. To know who you are, that you're his. 
and to know whose you are, that you belong to him and he is with you always, whether you can see him or not. And it means that your destiny forever, as well as your present, is secure. To know God is great, and to be known by God is better by far. In the name of Jesus, crucified and risen for you and for me, amen.